So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Hello, Sahla, and welcome back to Unlimited. Link to our feedback form is now available in our description for today's episode, so don't forget to fill it out. It's only a few questions. And if you actually want to be featured in a future episode, you can also do that in the same link. So stay tuned to see if you get to be in season two. This week, we are joined by Talal Khair, who has served on the board since 2009 in several different roles, including president. He has founded several companies over the years and brings great perspective to our group. So without further ado, here's Talal. MIT Class of 69 alum, civil engineer, holds a PhD in structural engineering and structural mechanics. Originally Syrian, lived in the U.S. and the U.K. and has had quite the successful career in IT as a CEO, an advisor, and a consultant. This is Talal Khair and our guest of honor for today's episode. Talal has been on the MIT AAA board for several years and serves as an advisor today. Talal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. I want to tell you maybe the story of how I got to MIT. So I was saying that I was really French educated, was thinking about pursuing my studies in France. I was preparing, preparing my application to Polytechnique in Central when somebody said, I think you're wasting your time. Why don't you go to the U.S.? And I said, yeah, what's in the U.S.? But the language, he said, no, no, it's, it make a lot of difference. Apply. So I... I started the application and uh, and I applied to actually three universities, Stanford and University of Texas at Austin and MIT, of course. And the funny thing I was, that I was actually rejected at the University of Texas, Austin. She said, you're going to have a lot of difficulty being Syrian and coming. And it was at the time where Syria did not have a relationship with the U.S. So they thought they made the decision on my part saying that it's going to be difficult. Anyway, so I was accepted at MIT and I went on a specific date. I was supposed to arrive and then go to YMCA in Cambridge. I was one, oh, wow. I was one day late when I, <laughs> I took a taxi from the airport. Didn't know, didn't know anything about the United States mm. and arrived at the YMCA, and they said, sorry, Mr. Kerr, but your reservation has been canceled because you are one day late. You didn't let us know. Panic. Oh, no. So I said, okay, that's it. Next day, I'm going to go to the school and then get my ticket and go back home. <laughs> but what a reception at MIT. I mean, the second day I went, and first of all, you know, the entrance to MIT and I, on the stairs, I found somebody from Lebanese origin that is a brother of a good friend. 
And he really, it was very, very uplifting to find that somebody by chance that I knew or I knew his brother. So I continue on that corridor, that famous corridor, and I think the foreign student advisor had an office there. So I, I sat and I apprehensive, uh, and he was very welcoming and all that. And he said, where you come? I said, from Damascus. He said, oh, yeah, I know Damascus. I know Abu Rumane, and I know this. And I was flabbergasted that this guy <laughs> knew Damascus with the, and the wow. school. Yeah. So from there on, it was... I felt much more relieved and then I followed and I was excited to to do something different. I never done anything like that. So you were a freshman in a new country yeah. who had just lost his housing right. and was about to turn back but a familiar face and uh, a yeah. foreign office uh, administrator made you feel at home. Absolutely. And made me feel totally different about MIT. Then came the academic and they said, okay, now because you are coming in half of the undergrad, not half the first year, half the second year. Mm. We're going to give you, try to credit you for all the courses you took in French. And then I went through a list and I kept saying, yeah, I took that. Yes, I took that. Yes, I took that. And they kept giving me credit. And then they said, hold on. (laughs) We can't give you, continue giving you credit because you'll end up with a degree in mathematics, you know. <laughs> this is the difference between the French way and the American way. The mm. French really give you a lot of information, while the American way are more practical. So uh, although I was very educated, but you know you don't get a grasp of what you're learning Till you do something with your hand. That's where the motto of MIT. Right. Men's at Manus. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So you knew you wanted to continue civil engineering at this point. You had started your degree in civil engineering uh, in a French university. You said it was a preparatory college? Preparatory school. What I did is math and Mm -hmm. physics and chemistry, basically. I did not Mm -hmm. do any civil engineering till Mm -hmm. I got to MIT. And then I but you knew you wanted to do it when yeah. you came to MIT? Well, as, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, at that time, Arabs always apply, male, apply for civil engineering. Mm. And say because electrical <laughs> was too far out at that time because they couldn't find a job when they go back home. You know, mm. but civil is, you know, is always needed. Right. But things have definitely changed now. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> then you can now you have much more freer to choose what you want, what you really want, you know. In fact, right. that touch on the fact that one of uh, the fact that I was studied engineering, graduated as civil engineer, and then at that time I applied for further uh, study at schools that were really top. MIT was not necessarily top level in civil engineering. It Mm. was at that time. But there was Mm -hmm. University of Illinois, Champaign was number one, if I believe. And then UC Mm -hmm. Berkeley was also very well known. 
So I applied to UC Berkeley because at that time I was really more into living and discovering the state <laughs> being academic at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went to UC Berkeley and got my master and started also my doctorate uh, there. And I practiced uh, in California. I practiced as a structural engineer. I had at least three years of uh, practicing uh, structure, structural engineering, which is a part of civil engineering, but more mm. focused on structure. Right. So it was that I really learned a lot too in that level. I I think this uh, this is going to lead into your career and, and your shift in career into the IT sector. But I I want to know if there was anything that preceded that in your time in college and undergrad and in graduate school where you started to. Uh, maybe have some interdisciplinary uh, experience where you got exposed to IT. Where where did that exposure to IT come from uh, beforehand, or did you just dive right into IT without any? No, uh, no, no. That was exposure? that was something that they encouraged us to take mm. MIT. That you have to take some computer uh, science and. Mm. Um, I remember, of course, that's a typical MIT story. Uh, <laughs> they had they had a mini frame. Mini, I don't know if mini frames still exist. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the same frame, and there's uh, you know the computer that we have, uh, but uh, the mini frame was somewhere in between. But the mini frame was very big, so the professor has reprogrammed through software for that mini frame to act as a small computer. And he gave it a name. And this is what's impressive uh, about uh, MIT student is right away, some of the students went behind the scene in the software and changed the name of the program. <laughs> you know, like, oh my God. You know, this is typical MIT pranks. <laughs> Hacking from the very beginning. Right. <laughs> and, and I remember the teacher said, hey, lovely, great, congratulations. Could you please put back <laughs> the original name? <laughs> so at, at that time, computers weren't very popular, were they? No, because we were punch paper, you know, punch uh, mm-hmm. uh, cards. I mean, it was a good thing. And that's where I got my love for uh, coding and programming because I thought that was also a fascinating world. But I continued on the path and I did uh, and and, and some other things that happened at MIT that I like to mention that were really only MIT could do that. One is a class in geology where we were given a laser because at that time, laser was something, you know, very secretive and whatever. And they gave it to us. And we were trying to uh, shoot laser on rocks and see how rock uh, disintegrate with the <laughs> Wow. And of course, one of the class, one of the guy who was in the class went on in private and started some company that does exactly that which means tunneling through lasers. Oh. 
And, Amazing. Yeah. And the other one is the scope. That's what MIT always, the scope they give you. The scope is unlimited. Right. One of the class was to do a project that is, and they gave us some clue about what to do or where to go. I chose a project based on the Qatara Depression. I don't know if you know the Qatara Depression. But it's in Egypt, between Libya and Egypt. Mm. It's a big depression that was caused by a meteor. And really really deep, close to the sea. My project was to see if it's feasible to study the geology of that uh, Qatara and to have water channeled into that depression and create an artificial, huge artificial lake or sea that would change all the weather around around the environment and so on and so forth. So this... This, those are the things that you keep with you from MIT, you know. It's expanding your mind and nothing is impossible. And I think the greatest thing is that it didn't even have anything to do with the civil engineering yes. to some extent, did it? Yeah, well, it's geology. <laughs> geology is the yeah. best way of that, yeah. It's sometimes these uh, extra classes that you take outside of your required courses that are the most interesting. Most interesting and challenge you and you strut, uh, strut, right. try to work as a team with somebody else in different uh, mm-hmm. discipline. Right. And I think that's something they really try to encourage in students generally. And and maybe that's why the students that uh, that they accept into MIT are typically well-rounded have multi-faceted interests and um, like I, I've never met someone at MIT who was just so into what they were doing that they weren't looking at anything else. Everyone's always trying to do something different and, and try something new and, and MIT really uh, encourages that. Yeah, and I encountered this through the applicants which I interview uh, for for right. at MIT. It's always that they are really open to everything. I mean, the the time has changed a lot, but it's still the same quality, and they know exactly how MIT functions and what is MIT. The fact that it's an environment created to really foster creativity, and uh, you can't you can't buy that, you can't make that, you can't invent that. It's innate to MIT and that's what is great is that atmosphere the fact that you can reach a professor he may be a famous professor a Nobel Prize, doesn't matter you can talk and ask questions and and be with him or work for him or whatever there's no hierarchy at MIT that's that's what I found out exciting too so to take from all of this experience and, and the growth that you were able to achieve during your time at MIT, how did that influence the rest of your, the beginning of your career? Well, uh, I mean, I did the engineering, always having the name that I've been to MIT, open door. There's no doubt. And uh, I remember when I was looking for a job in California, and it was a tough market. And I needed actually to stay in the States. I needed to have an employment. And I remember going to an interview and I've been told 
that if you want something, you really go to extra stuff. So I was interviewed. I asked to, to come back and I said and I told them, look, I really like your company. I like the vibes and I will work for whatever. But but I like uh, that got me the job, by the way. <laughs> but persistence. <laughs> persistence. And if you know what you want, and it was really a great company. I learned a lot from that company I worked. It was based in Oakland, uh, California. So I, I also uh, am aware that the job market wasn't great at the time. And, and you know, with COVID, uh, the job market isn't great now, especially for international students who are trying to uh, find jobs uh, in, in the U.S. So what advice would you give them? The advice is definitely be persistent and show whoever is interviewing you that you can really add a lot to that company. Not by 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 saying, but by showing your enthusiasm. Yeah. Had you considered uh, at that point ever going back to the region? I remember at the beginning you said most people from the Arab world will will do civil engineering because you can get hired for that. But now you were finding yourself in the U.S. Uh, interested in IT and interested in computer science. Um, was it the lack of opportunities that kept you in the U.S. or was it something else? It, this is a tough question because I meant I meant to go back. You know, once you are open, and that's I've seen that through a lot of people, once that door is open and you excel into you what you do, you feel like, am I going to have that same opportunity when I go back? And that's really what stops you from going back. So you have to have an incentive to go back that is natural, i.e. that you feel like you are contributing, that you are doing something meaningful. And if that opportunity does not accept, we're going to lose a lot, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So you found opportunities in the U.S. um, to eventually change career trajectory and go into IT. What was that like? It came when the first computer came about, the first personal computer. And I was really excited by that. I remember buying the first one, which is that that IBM that is a museum piece now. And that the feeling of being free and you can program on your own without having to go, without punch cards, without all that things, that was liberating. So that's the excitement. And I am known to be like a, like a butterfly, i.e. I spent a few years there, I like it, then I move on to something else uh, that excites me, you know. And that was, at that time, I got into it because of coding and programming. But funny how life deals you a different card. I ended up being more in business than computing and coding. And it's only later in my life when I came to England that I was able to link up again with that technology because I opened a training center. And we soon expanded to five training centers in the UK that was training IT technician to go back to the company and take care of the infrastructure 
of those companies. So that was very much in demand mm, at that right. time. So, so the, the initial impulse was really programming and coding, <laughs> but it ended up having my Syrian entrepreneur blood come, you know, doing business. Tell us a little bit more about that. What, what's your family like? Well, actually, I am. My father died when I was uh, uh, two and a half years old. So, oh. uh, but he was he was a politician. Mm-hmm. He was a famous non-seated politician, which means he worked in the background. Now he knew all the famous people, you know, from Shukri Watley to all the people that you think in Damascus were top. They were people he sit and have coffee with. Being left, when he left me early, because I don't remember anything about it, this is the worst situation when you end up with a mother that keeps saying how great was your father. <laughs> you feel like, you know, you, you, you're trying to live up to somebody you haven't seen uh, fall or make mistakes mm-hmm. or, you know. It's at the same time, that's what right. drives you. And it seemed to drive you really far uh, to end up as a CEO and founder of an IT company yourself. How much longer after your, your first business transition uh, did you eventually start your own company? Well, I started a company. You know, Saudi Arabia was being built at that time, the infrastructure. Right. And there was a, it was a land of opportunity at that time. Uh, so I took uh, an American company that uh, specialized in rigging. If you know what rigging is, is moving heavy piece of equipment around. We are talking about 300 ton plus. And uh, uh, Saudi Arabia needed all those big petrochemical units to move to move them and, and, and erect them. So I thought an op- it was an opportunity and I took that company that specialized in this. And of course, we formed the usual joint venture. That was my first entrepreneur thing where well, it has to do with engineering, but no IT. I only got to IT is when I left Saudi and came to England first and then to the US. And I was sitting, I said, okay, now I've done that. What can I do? So I got into IT then, again, in the commerce level. I was in a little town in Wisconsin, Wausau, Wisconsin. So that's where my kid grew up. And it was an ideal place to grow, to let the children grow. So I did open a little store selling some IT stuff. And then I opened, I made it mail order because I felt the reach in Wisconsin was not enough. I wanted to reach wow. the whole United States. And that's what happened. Because at that time, yeah. it was an opportune time, and I was selling, you know, to California, Arizona, whatever, from that little hole in the ground <laughs> in Wisconsin. Wow. So mail order pre-Amazon. Pre-Amazon. And, you know, this is the time, as I said, when I could go to uh, conferences or to uh, exhibition, and then we could dine with uh, Gates, you know. Right. I mean, Gates was, yeah, it was that time. Wow. He was, he was pushing his, his Microsoft at that time, and we were buying Microsoft. So how did um, that experience really uh, continue from, from that point? Well, it, it continued on. As I said, then I, I realized the mail order grew bigger than I expected. And I'm not 
you know, I, I got my degree in civil engineering and I like IT, but I'm not really uh, a warehouse man. And the mail order is a warehouse business. How fast can you get it in? How fast can you right. get it out? Uh, so I open uh, the circumstances in England. I have a friend that was out, uh, just was changing jobs, and he said, "I'm ready to do something on my own." So I open uh, another company in London, and this company in London took a different direction. It was more focused on technical stuff and teaching technical stuff and being close to technical stuff. And that's where uh, I, I I closed the U.S. Mm -hmm. because I realized soon that although I was at six and seven million dollars at that time, uh, total sale, wow. my competitor that started after me was at 15. And in Chicago, which is a much bigger town. So I said, maybe maybe I should let that go and go back to London. And so focus on you've been in London since then? 30 years, wow. yes. Almost 30 years. So yeah. it must have been a great success. Yes, it was a, a very, very successful. And it's so funny when you start something and you grow big and you advertise and then you see suddenly, of course, the competitor comes and uh, they do their thing. Mm. But you feel like you start and really entrepreneur if you're really business focused which I wasn't mm -hmm. is when you start something and it go big sell it and move on to something <laughs> else <laughs> but I, I couldn't I, I just like this is something I started I wanted to stay with it for a while mm -hmm. I would say I stayed a bit late uh, I had to uh, sell it, and then get back into IT, for providing IT to company, a lot of company in the UK, and acting as their IT backup. So I did that for a while, mm. but I was just very close to retirement at that age anyway. So what have you been up to in, in recent years? Well, the latest thing you're going to laugh is I'm taking a biochemistry class with ED, EDX. Wow. What got you into that? That's <laughs> once you are at MIT, are always at MIT. <laughs> <laughs> always learning. That curiosity, you know, because mm -hmm. I thought I didn't know enough about biochemistry, and, and especially with COVID. Especially with COVID, and it's in the middle of everything right right, right now. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I I took a first course. And this is, if they talk about drinking from the hose, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm all about. And in this time, it's uh, it's definitely, you brought it on yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's, that brought it on myself. But because I have plenty of time, mm -hmm. and, and this is something that I feel, um, I feel good about, you know. I, right. It, it gives me incentives and. I bore I bore my wife to death telling her, oh, how exciting it is, you know, this small <laughs> interact with this one. <laughs> Honestly, biochemistry is definitely one of my favorite classes. So oh, if you wow. ever need someone to talk about biochemistry with, maybe at our next board meeting. <laughs> 
your what's your uh, specialty, by the way? I studied biochemical engineering, so oh, you did? biochemistry wow. was part of it. Yes. Um, wow. So, tell us a little bit more about your experience. Had you ever received any advice that changed the way you looked at things? My boss at that company, mm-hmm. structural engineering, uh, was working in Auckland. He was, you you know, mm-hmm. he was a teacher, a practical teacher, and he really passed on something I never had because I was always analyzed the structure intellectually with formulas and numbers and all that. He taught me how to feel a structure, which is... Wow. This is something you don't learn at school. <laughs> so that's why I think people who take their bachelor degree should have a year off before they continue to master's or whatever. Because I think they learn much more and they know exactly what they want to learn when right. they come back. Because I was going to doctorate and I had, it was all theoretical formula. And- yeah. So not only did you get a piece of advice, but you've just given a great piece of advice to our listeners to take that gap year after undergrad before they start any more graduate studies. It makes sense because you, you learn some theoretical and then you go and you find that in real life they have slightly different problem mm-hmm. i mean so you can go back and then say okay i'm gonna solve all those problems that i encountered outside in school building on that love of learning that we we discussed uh i also came to know that you speak six languages tell us more about that okay the base of that you're not gonna believe it but it's uh when I was at the school in Lebanon, Jesuit, I was forced, put between quotation mark, to take Latin courses. Oh, wow. Now, Latin, everybody said, it's a dead language. Why am I learning a dead language, for heaven's sake? You know, <laughs> it's not the base. Right. You only appreciate it later on that it's help you in math. You say, how would the language help me in math? Just because you have to decode the sentences <laughs> in Latin. And also, it gives you root for so many languages. Right. And I like languages anyway. So that gave me an incentive. Whenever I find a, a language, I want to know how to pronounce it, you know, what the word means, etc. So it's it's an inclination. I mean, besides English, Arabic, French, I really don't need German and Italian, <laughs> and you know. But but it's that curiosity, that same curiosity that when you are a curious mind, it never stops. I think something I wanted to touch on at the beginning that we we didn't get a chance to is the contributions you've actually made to the MIT AAA and the board uh, over the past decade. Um, So when you first joined, uh, the club was uh, somewhat inactive for a few years, and you actually were... The first time time I joined, it was active, and I was a board, board member. Would you believe they put me in charge of funding, which is, uh, <laughs> which is, I'm good. I'm good at when I'm person to person, you know, mm-hmm. mass mail and all that doesn't uh, work for me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, what year was that? That was, I think I have to reach for uh, 2009. Okay. Yeah. Because we had a, we had a conference in Abu Dhabi. 
mm-hmm. at that time was on the board. And it was led by an MIT-er, Tarek Aghizi, Mm. And very enthusiastic. And he knew this is sometimes how board work, because he knew people at Masdar. You know Masdar. Yeah, in the UAE. And, and Masdar was really trying to establish itself. Mm-hmm. And we made a conference together. And we brought a lot of people, including uh, Martin Schmidt. And- wow. So that got exciting and then see the possibility and all that. And then when the time finished, unfortunately, they didn't pay attention to the continuation. They let it fall. And after maybe six months or eight months, that's when I decided maybe I'll step in and and revive it. Well, with the online conferences, actually, there's uh, SciTech, which we started uh, a few years ago, is having an online rendition this year. Uh, and they're going by MIT Arab yeah. Conference now. So anyone who, who's around should, uh, should have already checked them out at this point, I think. Um, but uh, with the online platform, it's a great. You can get all sorts of speakers who are usually too busy to attend these kinds of events. Well, good. That should be pursued because that's the way it is. Uh, you know, witness our interview. Yeah, <laughs> you're all the way in London, and I'm in Saudi Arabia, and uh, it's great to be able to have some nostalgia moments about uh, MIT. So to to close out, then um, yeah. we we like to ask this very nostalgic question. But what is one thing, or at least one thing, that you miss about MIT? Well, I, I missed going daily through the dome into the civil engineering, by the way, class one was right right at the entrance right. of uh, the MIT, that, that where it mm-hmm. was. I, I miss that. And I miss, I miss also the student center activities. It's it's more diffuse nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I go there, I feel I, I feel the student center. It, it take me back, yeah. you know, take me back fifty years, <laughs> and, and things haven't changed a lot yet. Yeah. Of course, a lot changed. You didn't ask me about that, but I think you know what changed is the ratio, woman man. Mm-hmm. And, and more diversity at uh, at uh, MIT. So that, those those are, you can see it right, right. away. It's great that you get a, an opportunity to to visit campus and and relive those memories and and see the differences and changes that MIT has experienced over the years. I think they had oh yeah. They had, a, that's what I miss, a student, the union, the student union used to invite somebody famous to lecture the students or, or talk to the students. Mm. And at a, one time, Muhammad Ali came. Mm. And that was a high, he was invited. The boxer? Yeah, the boxer. Wow. He invited and he impressed me, you know, for his quickness yeah. and his uh, sense of humor and all that. There's always something to do at MIT. Always. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Talal, for showing us a little bit of what MIT was like back in the day and, and how it's uh, changed and how it's influenced your 
incredible career over the years. Mm. Um, and we're, we're so glad to have you as part of our board, as an advisor, and you've been so involved with the MIT AAA and we, we couldn't have uh, launched a podcast like this without you. So thank you so much, Talal. Take care. That was Talal Khair, class of 69, an ex-officio board member. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. As you know, our feedback form is now live and is available in all the bios. So please don't forget to fill it out. It's only a few questions and it'll help us continue to provide content that you actually want to hear. So please don't forget to fill it out and, and tell your friends about the podcast. As always, a huge shout out to Arin Bahur, Omar Abaya, and Ma'moon Tuqan for helping make this show a reality. And to the rest of the MIT AAA board for supporting us. Thank you all so much and see you next week.